Hello, everyone. Uh, this is the Society of Armenian Studies podcast series. I'm Zovinar Derderian, and today we're here with Professor Ronald Suni in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Uh, Ron Suni is a professor in the Department of History in Ann Arbor, uh, Michigan, at the University of Michigan. Uh, the book that we will discuss today is titled They Can Live in the Desert But Nowhere Else, A History of the Armenian Genocide that was published in 2015 by Princeton University Press. Hello, Professor Smith. Hello, Zovinar. It's a great pleasure to do this with you. Thank you for being here. Um, I first wanted to start by asking you about how you came to uh, decide to start this, the project of this book. Uh, you had been um, studying the genocide in various ways through organizing workshops, the decades preceding the publication of this book, and you had co-edited um, a, a volume uh, called A Question of Genocide uh, a few years earlier. So. Um, what did you hope to accomplish through this new volume on uh, the genocide? Let me start even before the time you mentioned, way back when. When I first came to study and to teach Armenian history at the University of Michigan, that was in 1977 and then beginning full-time in 1981, I did not even use the word genocide. I didn't use it because I didn't know enough yet, and the literature was very poor on the events of 1915. I remember being criticized by Vahakin Dadrian for saying massacres and deportations, but not genocide. As I taught Armenian history for 13 years at the University of Michigan from 1981 to 1994, it became clearer and clearer to me what genocide was, the deliberate state intentional killing, mass killing, and dest destruction of a cultural, linguistic, religious, ethnic group. Uh, it certainly fit Armenians. Uh, and I began to create my own record with the help of new scholarship on those events. And then eventually uh, I went to Turkey in 1997-98, uh, somewhere around there, and I gave a talk on the genocide in Turkey, which was illegal at the time, at Koç University. And I was surprised how interested the students were. I even did an interview. And when I came back, I talked to my colleague here, Mugay Grichek and Kevok Bardakshan. And we started this thing, which eventually be called Watts. We called Watts the Workshop in Armenian Turkish Scholarship. And for 15 years from the year 2000, well, more than that, until now, we've been having workshops, 10 so far, bringing Kurds, Armenians, Americans, Germans, whoever we can get our hands on together to do a scholarly discussion, create a record of the events of 1915. And it's been enormously effective and enormously successful. We could not have predicted because at just the time we were starting those workshops, there were changes in Turkey with the coming to power mm -hmm. of the AKP, the, uh, uh, the uh, movement of Erdogan, which allowed an opening, a public airing of some of these questions. The Turkish government, of course, never recognized the genocide, but there was permissiveness allowing people like Ayhan uh, Akhtar and Halik, uh, Halil Berktay and others to go on television to talk about it, to publish things. So we had colleagues and we developed a cohort of people in Turkey, uh, as well as in the United States and Europe. 
and it was extraordinarily successful. And as you mentioned, uh, Muguet and I and Norman Neymark at Stanford published this uh, collection of essays from those workshops called A Question of Genocide, Turks and Armenians at the End of the uh, Ottoman Empire. And uh, the title of that book is very interesting, A Question of Genocide, you know. Uh, it has a double entendre. Is it to be questioned or is it a matter of, mm -hmm. of, uh, of, of genocide? Uh, you know, and, and when it was translated into Turkish, it was clear that it was a matter of genocide, you know, soykrimin meselesi, you mm -hmm. know, then it works well. And there were some scholars, I won't mention any names, but some you may know, who actually were upset by that title, that he's they're questioning genocide. Well, all you had to do was read the book and you would know that, that in fact, we're raising the question mm -hmm. and saying this was a genocide, right? So that was the idea. But to get to your, your question itself, um, I thought I had done my work, and I'm not an Ottomanist, I'm a Russian and Soviet historian, and Muguet was writing her big, wonderful book uh, on, on denial, and there were others working in the field, Kevorkian and so forth, who really know the languages and all the rest, so I was, gonna, I was finished. But my, there was an editor at, at uh, uh, Princeton, Birgitte von Rheinberg, and her husband and friend, and, and my friend, uh, Eric Weitz, who has a series on human rights. And 2015 was coming up, and they said, you should write a book on the genocide. But I said, I'm not an Ottomanist. I don't know Ottoman. I'm studying modern Turkish. I can read that, but it's it's uh, you know difficult. And they said, no, no, you've done all this work, and you should write a synthetic history of the genocide. And so in a way, I thought, well, this is a kind of civic or maybe ethno-civic duty to do this, right? And I do have a view and do have an analysis. And I had just come off 10, 11 years of, of being a political scientist at the University of Chicago. Political scientists don't worry about languages. They don't worry about <laughs> archives. They just do their synthetic thing based on the work of others. And I thought maybe this is a good time for a book that would sort of uh, tell us what the state of the art is. Mm -hmm. What's the level of discussion on these events? And what would we say about it being a genocide? A synthetic survey history that would place it in the larger context of imperialism, imperial struggles, etc. And that is something I, I know about being a Russian historian and working on nationalism. So that's how mm -hmm. I got to it. It was, I was ordered to do it by these editors. <laughs> Thank you. Actually, this leads me to my other question uh, that um, your besides being a book on the genocide, it also seemed to me um, to be a book about transition from empire to nation. And uh, I'm wondering if uh, now that we've crossed the stage where we're trying to prove that this was a genocide uh, or decide whether it was a genocide or not, how can the study of the Armenian genocide perhaps contribute to other fields as well as to understanding the transitions from empire to nation? Those are excellent questions, and they're exactly the kind of thing that I would like to pursue in the future, and I think we've been doing in Watts as well. The first thing is, I, when I taught Armenian history here, I always told my students that Armenian history is not just the history of Armenians, or even of any territory that historically was known as Armenia, 
but is a history of the people and peoples and the imperial settings, whether it be ancient uh, Achaemenids or Sassanids or Ottomans or Russians or Romanovs or whatever, in which Armenians existed. That, that is the history, particularly of small peoples, of people who are not numerous, is deeply connected with the imperial settings in which they find themselves. So that led me to this, the study of empire. And by studying Armenians in that multi-cultural, uh, multi-state uh, environment, you get a whole different picture, right? Mm -hmm. You get a whole different picture. What you do, first of all, uh, and this could be done with other people's Jews or even big nations like Russians or the French, you find that the, the standard nationalist narrative of a continuous unbroken line from antiquity to the present the kind of primordialist or perennialist narratives don't work. That history is is much is as much about ruptures mm -hmm. and disconnections and wrong turns as it is about the construction of a national mythology and national tradition. Mm -hmm. Those elements also exist and they will be uh, appropriated and explored and mythologized by later generations, particularly nationalists or state builders or educational systems, right? We all know that story. But by looking at the history in its more imperial context, the same way that you as a young scholar and many of your Ottomanist generations are doing with the Ottomans, not writing history of Armenians and then a parallel and isolated history of Turks and another parallel history of whomever, Assyrians mm -hmm. or Kurds or Jews or Greeks or whatever, are seeing these in a larger imperial context, right? And you get different visions. You see things differently. For instance, you realize Armenians were, yes, Armenian. They had their own church. They had their own millet, their own sort of administrative. They were also people who were involved in the society, the trade, the economy, the ups, the downs, the vicissitudes. The, the wars of the Ottoman Empire. This was their home. They had their own desires within it. Armenians at a certain point wanted greater autonomy, protection from Kurdish predators, etc. But they were still Ottomans till the very last day. In fact, mm -hmm. some people like uh, Grigoris uh, uh, Balakian, the wonderful memoir we have uh, that was recently translated, uh, think these Armenians trusted the Ottomans too long, for much too long. They should have given up on them far easier. Hmm. And of course, the Dashnak Suchun was working with the young Turks until almost the last minute. So you get a whole different perspective by placing it in that imperial setting. Right. And so that uh, brings me to the other question of the Armenians being with the Ottomans till the last minute, because uh, it strikes to the heart of the, I think, central debate in uh, the study of the Armenian genocide now, of whether it was the Hamidian, uh, whether the Hamidian massacres were part of the uh, part of the genocide plan, mm -hmm. uh, or uh, whether, as you, I think, position yourself, it was a contingent event. Um, can you explain where uh, you position yourself in that debate, and also? In that context, I wanted to hear more about the notion that um, the concept that you sort of created for your book of affect, uh, affective death, 
effective disposition and uh, was that something that led up to the genocide mm. okay this is a, a really important thing now i did not originate the notion that there were discrete and separate events namely the hamidian massacres mm -hmm. of the 1890s uh, the pogrom the urban massacres of in adana in 1909 and the genocidal events of 1916 1917. I remember reading that in other accounts, mm -hmm. at least hinted at, in Yves Ternon, who was a pioneer in the mm -hmm. study of the Armenian genocide and others. But the general Armenian narrative was one that one eschewed, left out, ignored explanation of the genocide, mm -hmm. and in fact conflated the genocide with everything else that had gone wrong in the Ottoman Empire back maybe to the 1860s. Uh, certainly the, the Hamidian massacres and Adana and so forth. In other words, massacre in this particular take, and you can find it in Bahak and Dadrian and others, uh, was simply a, an instrument of rule by the Ottomans, and it was aimed particularly at the Armenians. There were others, Bulgarians, Greeks earlier, but it was aimed at the Armenians with the idea eventually of exterminating them. And when I looked at the events, and this, by the way, has become now a much more dominant paradigm mm -hmm. the, the the disaggregation of these events if you mm -hmm. look at the Hamidian events they are what i would call um, a exemplary repression that was about um, um that was about uh, keeping armenians in their place teaching them a lesson uh thwarting any revolutionary or even reformist ambitions they might have but not their uh, uh elimination. Mm -hmm. um, 1909 was a, a, a discrete event. It was uh, it, it came out of the 1908 revolution and Bedros Dermatosian has shown this well in his work at a moment of, of the development of a public sphere, uh, of Armenians being much more visible, of creating uh, fears and anxieties in the minds of Muslims who thought Armenians are going to take over or uh, they're going to have their own state here or something like that mm. and and 1915 1915 is an example of what you can call excisionary violence of mm. eliminationist annihilation it means to change radically the democrat demographic nature of anatolia uh to make it more turkish more muslim etc so though it seems to me another kind of event on the other hand are there continuities between them Absolutely, right? And that's what makes it, uh, uh, you should be, we should be more nuanced about this. That is, there are aspects of the Hamidian massacres which are also excisionary, which where they really are getting rid of people, mm -hmm. as in Sassoon, let's say, or somewhere like that. Um, and uh, there, there are, uh, uh, one of the continuities, and there are many in terms of using violence as a mechanism of state rule, etc., uh, and not implementing reforms really and learning from your past massacres that you can get away with things that the West won't really uh, enter in and intervene significantly. All those continuities exist. But what you mentioned is, is what was the center of my book is that over time, a certain affective disposition, which means an emotional understanding of Armenians on the part of Muslims hmm. developed evolved, deepened, until it became genocidal. 
you can trace that that affective disposition, that construction of the Armenians as an alien, Western, treacherous, deceptive, deceitful, uh, existential threat to the empire, to Abdul Hamid II. You can see it in his writings and some of the things he sends out in his orders to Eastern Anatolia. All of that is really interesting. You can see in the work of my friend uh, Chetinkaya on the boycotts after uh, the, the 1908 revolution, the popularization, the massivization of some of these attitudes, starting with Greeks, foreign Greeks, the, the uh, Yunnan. But then you find it on the Rum, on the domestic Greeks, on the Ottoman Greeks, mm. uh, also as enemies in Italy. And those attitudes shift over to the Christians. You see during the Balkan Wars, where Christians are carrying out quite horrific massacres of, of Muslims in the Balkans during that terrible series of wars, that these attitudes begin again to accumulate. And it's very easy to transfer them to the Armenians mm. uh, and and to adopt policies that then become exterminationist. Sure. Uh, thank you for that. And I um, guess that leads me to... Uh, it seems that uh, you have really brought together all the entire scholarship that has been written. <laughs> Up to now. Wait, there'll <laughs> yes. be more. There's yes. a lot of so local studies. What I'm wondering is, uh, where do you see the study of the Armenian genocide going from here? What gaps do you think needs to be filled? Oh, I think there's plenty to do. Mm -hmm. There's plenty to do. And I think it's already happening. And the most exciting thing are what I would call local studies. That's mm -hmm. one thing. So why, and I just wrote an introduction to a, um, a journal. Etude Armenienne Contemporaine. Yeah, Etude Armenienne Contemporaine with this wonderful editor, Boris. Ajemian. Ajemian, but does he say Boris in the Russian way or Boris? I think Boris. Boris. <laughs> in the way? I don't know. But he's a wonderful man, and he's Raymond Kevokian's successor at the Newbar mm -hmm. Library. Uh, and they're doing wonderful things. And in this series of articles uh, that was in these two volumes, you see these deep studies. Ali mm -hmm. Sipaya, he, who is one of our former students, and, mm -hmm. and others uh, uh, who are doing, I can't remember all the names right now. And that all kinds of var variation are developing. You see more clearly when you look at the, that, those series on the Hamidian massacres, how spontaneous many of them were, how disorganized many of them were, how little central control. The center gave permission, you know, allowed things to happen, but it wasn't like Talat and his telegraph in Istanbul in 1915. Mm -hmm. So this was less directed from the center, right? Though, though there is encouragement and all. So that, that's very important. So one big development is more of those kinds of, of studies of different centers, how different they are, etc. We need more work on the Vaughan uprising or the Vaughan resistance or whatever we want to call it. The, the whole history of Vaughan needs to be uh, illuminated much more. And then there's the second thing, and that's where you come in, where Zovinar and Richard Antaramyan and some of our other students and others come in, and that's life, society, politics, self-conceptions, discourses before the genocide. Mm -hmm. What was life like 
what was the relationship of Armenians uh, through the centuries before, particularly in the early 19th century, mid 19th century, before the formation of revolutionary parties, before the massacres of the 1890s, uh, their conceptions, their ideas of who they are. Is this a nation? What's our relation to the church? What's our relation to the secular intelligentsia? All those kinds of things seems to me have been underexplored, but mm -hmm. a, a generation, a current generation is doing that. And then the kinds of things that you uh, and, and others did in the collection that you, you produced recently, the title of which is? The Ottoman East. The Ottoman East, yes. 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 Not Eastern Anatolia or historic Armenia or Kurdistan, but the Ottoman <laughs> yes. East. Right. That's a much you more neutral topic, yes. yes. Yeah. That's good. So I think there's lots to be done. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And one more thing I'd say, mm -hmm. jean just to finish, sorry for interrupting, but notice that my book is two-thirds or more about the pre-genocide, about the period roughly 1878 mm -hmm. to... 1915. I'm interested in the causes, the motivations, the ideology, ideology of the genocide. Mm -hmm. And I did not, and I only think I have two or three or four chapters on the genocide itself. So there's a lot of work to be done on the actual genocide, the mechanisms, the participants, the perpetrators, the victims. And to add to that, there's a lot of work which is now going on. Mm -hmm. I think of Keith Watt and Paul, uh, think of, of um, uh, Melanie Tenelian and others who are, uh, and Tuche, our own Tuche, um, uh, Kayala, uh, uh, who is doing work on the post-genocide, on the humanitarian effects, the ways in which the genocide became one of the major moments at which thinking about human rights and humanitarianism begins to develop. Mm -hmm. Thank you for that. Uh, my only question, um, um, rising from what you said, is how do we cover the 19th century uh, history of Armenians in the Ottoman Empire without falling in a teleological uh, fault line? Mm. And I think you do a good job of that in your book, not to necessarily suggest that uh, whatever happened was bound to lead to a right. genocide. Yeah. The the getting away from the framing of the of history uh, in the national frame in the or mm -hmm. in the nationalist frame, but even the national frame, right? This mm -hmm. is Armenian history, or whatever, is really difficult. And one technique would be, and this is not an easy thing to say, because it's difficult to do, is to learn and study as much as you can about the history, not only of the empire. Mm -hmm. of the dominant heron folk, the Muslims or whoever, but the other millets. Mm -hmm. That is, if one read deeply in the history of the Greek uh, millet the, 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 uh, or, and, the, and the Jewish millet and others, if one could more clearly, and we need to develop this, develop the history of Kurdish, of the Kurds, mm -hmm. um, then, then you would be able to see, oh my goodness, this isn't just happening to Armenians. Armenians are defining themselves just as some others are defining, maybe against or in, in co concert with. That would be one technique uh, mm -hmm. to do that, right? But the, it, I'm talking about an integrative, multi-ethnic, yes. multi-religious, imperial history rather than a national history. Right. Um, finally, I want to ask about your um, very 
grasping title, they can live in the desert but nowhere else. If you can tell us how you picked that and who said these words. Yeah, they can live in the desert but nowhere else is reported by Henry Morgenthal, the American ambassador to Turkey at the time. He's, uh, and it, it, it was said by Talat Pasha mm -hmm. uh, when, in one of his conversations. And these are very reliable sources. This goes, he sent immediately telegrams and notices and reports back to the State Department. They're all available. And then he wrote them in his memoirs as well. So, uh, and that was one of the solutions was to drive the Armenians after murdering lots of them and converting others uh, into the deserts where they also committed massacres, by the way. So it wasn't any kind of haven or safe, safe place. Um, so I suggest, I came across that quote and I thought this is very dramatic. Let me suggest it to Princeton. And I remember going to Princeton University Press and Brigitte, my wonderful editor, uh, was taking me on a tour and we were thinking about uh, titles uh, for the book. And I said, well, I have this title, you know? And she said, oh, let's propose that to the editor, the head of the press. So we walk into the office of this fellow, I can't remember his name. And she, you know, she introduces me and I said, this is the title. And he loved it. And so there we went and, and, and we did it. And you know, whenever you, and you'll find this out as you publish uh, more, uh, that uh, when, you, when, you, when you work with editors and publishers, we're always at a slight disadvantage, <laughs> but it's mutual because they want your book if it's good and you want their press if they're good and all of that. Then you have struggles about things like that. Well, it wasn't much of a struggle on that front, but then Brigitte had the idea of the cover. And I was thinking of something more traditional, you know, one of these, photos of suffering or not dead bodies necessarily, but the famous one of the woman carrying the baby or something. And she came up with this carnation, this flower. Mm. And I said, what does this have to do with the genocide? You know, and, and the press said, look, what you want is a dramatic cover. Mm -hmm. By the way, this is a commemorative flower and people use them. They place it on, on, on at times. It should have been in the book somewhere uh, on, on uh, Photos. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, but what you want is something dramatic that the people will pick the book up off the table or out of the shelf. Then if they turn the page and they are interested, they'll take it. And that I, I really love the cover now, right? And even yeah. though it doesn't speak specifically to the Armenian case, it's a very dramatic one. Thank you. I was also very touched and thought it was very powerful the way you weaved in some of your um, family narratives into the book. And I think it's always a dilemma for a historian whether we want to bring in our, um, um, our own narrative at the risk of maybe being interpreted as subjective by mm. the audience. So, and I, I think this is the first time that you're really doing this in a book. I don't think I've noticed it. Mm. Uh, at the same time, it was, I thought, very powerful and in a sense uh, brought the human experience of genocide mm. uh, into the picture. So I was wondering if you can say a few words about yeah. the choice of being... Yeah, you can't hide the fact that, that mm. this the author of this book about the Armenian genocide is an Armenian. Okay, mm -hmm. he's an American Armenian. He's an, a, not a nationalist. In fact, he's an anti-nationalist. He's mm -hmm. on the left politically, right? All of those things. But people will say, oh, they can dismiss the book because it's written by an Armenian, as if you can't 
have a specific temporal and spatial and even ethnic location and write good, objective, neutral, as much as is humanly possible history, which of course I think you can do. I don't think only women write women's history or only Russians write Russian history. I wouldn't be doing this for a living. Yeah, but uh, I tried very, at a very low key to, to note that my grandmother had been uh, uh, living in Diyarbakir. Her family was attacked and her sister was killed in the 1890 massacres and they came mm -hmm. to America. And my grandfather had been a 19 year old tailor uh, from Yozgat, central Turkey, one of the places where the worst part of the genocide was. And he had gone in 1908 uh, to uh, Samson and he was mm -hmm. planning to go to America. And his, uh, his uncle came to tell him not to go. But when the Adana massacres occurred, he left the country and came to America, for which I'm very grateful. Um, and then his whole family was wiped out in the genocide. You know, mm -hmm. And he never saw them again, which I think he lived with the rest of his life. Uh, I never heard him spoke, speak Turkish, but he was obviously a fluent Turkish speaker, even better than Armenian at one point. We called him Dede, which mm -hmm. I didn't know was a Turkish word for grandfather. Uh, I only learned that when I started to learn Turkish many years later. So I did that. Now, there are other places. When I wrote my book, The Making of the Georgian Nation, I mentioned my father, who had been a little boy, 11 mm -hmm. years old, when the Bolsheviks came to Georgia. Mm -hmm. And I tell that little story about that because that was one of the things that led me to history of Russia, history of the revolution, history of the Caucasus and so mm -hmm. forth. So I think if you do it in a subtle way and you, you, you show that there are connections, it's not a bad thing. Well, thank you. I thought it was very powerful. <laughs> oh, good. The little uh, tidbits from your family. Mm. And I thought uh, somebody had asked me what did you think of Ronson's book? And I said, this is the perfect book to assign <laughs> in the classroom because oh, I hope so. it's nuanced, complex, yet very easy to understand yeah. and uh, comprehend if you are not familiar with uh, Armenian history. But it's not boring if you are oh, thank you, thank familiar you. with Armenian I history. I wish more Armenians thought like you, Jovina, <laughs> because they're a little suspicious of this book. They still think it's not the book they want. Mm -hmm. because it tries deeply to understand why the Turks did what they did, why the young Turks did. And I don't take a racist or nationalist point of view. My point of view is this is a complex process. Uh, it was uh, a, a, a result of their own perverse pathological understanding of the Armenians, mm -hmm. uh, who they then were able to victimize in the, in the course of the First World War. Well, thank you very much for writing the book and for uh, being with us today. Uh, thank you. Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you. You think it worked? I think so. My roommate just Did came you? back.